What's good, First Church? Welcome to church, and uh, it's so good to be here with you. Last week, I missed you guys. I had a painful surgery um, going on last week, and I ended up uh, pulpit swapping with our friend, Pastor Daniel, and I got to go to his church, and it was great. It was great worshiping with them. They have a, a cool church, but it just reminded me of how much I love you guys, and I'm so glad to be a part of an awesome church with wonderful people, and uh, I also, we had some consultants come in and talk to us about our church and kind of examine, do studies, and whatever, and uh, we did what's called a 360-degree review. And if you don't know what that is, that's where you give your employees anonymous surveys so that they can like talk about you behind your back, which is super cool. And uh, so they did that, and you know, I thought we were gonna get killed. Leaders hate doing these surveys. You know, you get you get what they say, and they savage you, and it's like who wrote that, you know, or whatever. I mean, just kidding. But uh, we got a very high score, actually. We did better than I thought. We uh, beat Disney, which nowadays isn't saying much, but we actually beat Disney in their historic high scores. They took the same test, and we beat Regency Hotels, which are some of the highest scoring in the country. We beat our consulting firm. In fact, our employee satisfaction score is the highest that they know of in the history of this famous decades-old test, which is really cool. Yeah, come on. We got 97 out of 100, which the previous historic high score was 94, so we crushed it, and I think that's a reflection of you guys. Like, our church is such a wonderful place to work, to be at, and I'm so grateful to be serving here because we get to serve such wonderful people who are faithful and godly, and I just feel blessed. I really do feel blessed to be a part of it. Not only that, but um, this last Sunday, Memorial Day, was uh, once again our largest combined Memorial Day attendance ever, and it's not just people. It's life change. I mean, people finding hope and meaning in the gospel, Christians living out their God-given purpose together, it's fun growing. You know what's not fun? Declining. Yeah, it's not fun. I mean, declining in health, declining in finances, declining as a business, declining as a faith, and declining as a church isn't fun. We're in this teaching series called A Faith That Lasts. It's all about building a faith that lasts a lifetime, and we've been talking specifically about your faith lasting a lifetime. Today, I wanna talk a little bit about why faith doesn't last a lifetime through the generations. And all of us have seen, you know, have you ever seen those super godly families? They raise their kids, they're in church every Sunday, their kids are always there, and then their grandkids never darken the doors of a church building. It's like, why did that happen? Why did that faith die? What happened? And how can we stop it? Even if you're not a Christian, I think this message will be super relevant because um, it'll be framed for and themed for Christians, but if you're not a Christian, the concepts will still help. And how many responsible, you know, healthy families do we see where they're responsible, they're hardworking, they're faithful to their job and work and, and, and their job as a citizen, and then you see their grandkids, and it's like, they're horrible. They're struggling with basic life choices and responsibility. It's like, how did that happen? How did this family go downhill so quickly? Why does this happen? And to answer that question, I'm going to do what's a very typical John Hill message. I'm going to tell a story, look at some Bible, and I'm gonna make a point. It's just a one-point message with four subpoints. But it's just one point. I know, I do it again. Wow, my goodness. Okay, uh, the story I wanna start with, have you ever thought about the incredible life of the greatest generation? These are people born between 1901 and 1927, so most of them are gone, but they were born before cars were common, before light was a thing, before electricity and artificial light was normal. They lived before plastic had been invented, before TV and radio were common. News would take weeks to travel across the nation, and letters sometimes could take a month or more just to get to their destination. They came to age during the Great Depression when food was scarce, starvation was a real possibility, and America was really in trouble. Then they fought in World War II, not for their own safety. They fought against genocidal 
atheist tyrants to stop them from murdering the world as they gave their blood and their lives on the beaches of Normandy and across Europe and Japan. They came back and they created the greatest country in world history, the greatest culture to sweep the planet. I think about great men and women of the greatest generation. Specifically, I think about John Glenn. He was the first U.S. astronaut to orbit the Earth. He was born in 1921. He fought in World War II, and then he came back and fought again in Korea with three confirmed air-to-air victories. He was an amazing test pilot. He was a man of God, faithful to God and his church and his family. He flew to space in 1962, and just seven years later, NASA sent men to the moon in 1969. Seven short years to go from low Earth orbit to the moon. It's crazy. And you think about his life, his life, just imagine it with me. Born into a place with horse and buggy, no radio, no TV, flight, barely a novelty, plumbing and electricity, very rare, to flying to the moon by the time he was middle-aged. When he was born, it would take a week to travel from D.C. to L.A., a week, the fastest you could do it. From space, it took him nine minutes. It's a remarkable life. I remember talking with my grandpa, who was a member of the greatest generation. He was born in 1912. All the greatest generation. Do you remember how they used to marvel at progress? It's what they would all, they were all the same. They'd all be like, oh, the progress, the technology, the technology. They'd all talk about it because their life was sort of a dream world. I mean, they went from almost what to us today would seem like a primitive life to this incredible, I mean, the modern marvels of today in 1969, as John Glenn thought about the future, watching his friend Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, I know he thought the future would be bright. He thought in our lifetime we would have moon habitats. We would have multiplanetary civilizations, flying cars. I mean, the sky was not just the limit. I mean, we're going, we're going to the galaxy. When John Glenn died after a life well lived in 2016 at the age of 95, the United States did not go to the stars. In fact, we no longer could even go to the moon or even low Earth orbit. Our entire manned space program was dependent upon Russia and their Soyuz capsule. It was basically over. And it's amazing to think about how that happened. I mean, how did we stop dreaming? Where did we lose our vision? We went from virtually nothing to the moon in a decade. And then in the next 60 years, we lost all of that ability. And instead, we invented smartphones and chronically online dating and social media. Nice. And we're measurably less happy, more lonely. What happened to our drive? What happened to our dreams? What happened to our daring? And the answer is simple. A loss of purpose. Loss of purpose. Our entire drive into space, we're driven by this unified purpose of defeating Russia in the Cold War. We had a real and present danger of being dominated, enslaved by an evil atheistic empire. And once we made it to the moon, we didn't really know what to do next. And so we bickered and argued about that purpose. Make a space station, go to Mars, fight global warming, Focus on eliminating nuclear proliferation. I mean, what do we do? 60 years later, because we lost our purpose, we had basically accomplished nothing in six decades, nothing but bickering. It's amazing to think about the decline of NASA. You know what, though? It's not just NASA. It's churches. You ever realize churches had that same decline during that same time period, the same loss of ability, the same great heights to decades of decline. Why? As a kid, I still lived in the embers of the glowing era of churches in America, and I still remember some of the great churches in Minneapolis. I remember North Heights Lutheran Church. It was this church full of the Spirit, 
full of powerful worship, full of life and love, packed services. They had, and this is before megachurch was a thing, they had 7,500 members, new buildings, thousands of people. They were doing multi-site before anybody was doing it. Woodland Hills Church, they built in an old builder square. They were one of the first churches in the country to take commercial space and turn it into a church. And they were reaching unchurched people, thousands and thousands of people. And there was New Hope Church, they built this monster building on the freeway, prime lot space, this amazing balcony, thousands of people worshiping Jesus, and a missions program that was going to the nations. And I remember going to these churches as a kid, and I was so amazed, so many people worshiping God, so many people filled with life in Christ, and I thought, man, I could bring a friend to one of these churches and have them not hate it. That's what I thought. I could never bring a friend to my church, but one of these, I mean, they're just full of, and, and I thought, and this is what I thought, I thought, Jesus is going places. We are living in a revival. And I thought, Minnesota is going to the moon spiritually. I mean, Minneapolis is what I thought. I thought, Minneapolis is gonna be like a holy city. And people are gonna come from around the world to meet Jesus there because of what's happening. That, that was wrong. That was, that was very incorrect. Minneapolis, Minneapolis is not that. Today, for different but similar reasons, all three of those churches have been gutted. Shadows of their former selves. One of them closed. Just like NASA and John Glenn, we lost sight of our purpose. And just three decades later, not only did they not make progress, they lost most of their capabilities. It's remarkable to think about the American landscape. I mean, church held the commanding heights of the American culture just a few decades ago. Every school board, every town hall, every factory C-suite filled with men and women who served Jesus. We had goals to reach the nations. It's remarkable to think about the revivals of the 50s and 60s. Did you know that during the great revivals of the mid 20th century, three quarters of Americans, 78% of Americans were engaged with their local church. That's crazy. That's astonishing numbers. For decades, America had this great purpose of reaching people for Christ. Every service you went to, there would be an altar call, an invitation to receive Christ. We weren't just sending people to the moon. We were sending people to heaven and saving people from hell. But eventually... When 78% of people are going to church, life reaches this place where you know, everyone you know kind of follows Jesus already. Everyone you know, and just like NASA, we lost our purpose, didn't we? We started trying to fill the void. We didn't know what to do. So we just started making up purposes. Like, you know, churches started saying, well, instead of living out actively the call of God to reach people, let's just learn the Bible really well. Do you remember in the 80s where all of a sudden the original Greek and Hebrew became the only way to study God? Like it's just this new thing that just emerged. I remember as a kid, we had to learn the original languages. Suddenly this was so important. And then it was, let's make church about raising kids. We want to focus on the family with great kids camps and great Bible memory and all the stuff. And that's church and that's what it's for. And then it was about spirit-filled worship. Let's wave the ribbons. Let's do the thing. Let's dance for joy. Let the spirit fall. Then it's, let's make church a social justice platform that focuses on equity and the exclusion of people who are not inclusive enough in our eyes. In a few short decades, church was purposeless. And purposeless is a miserable place to be. Have you ever been a part of a purposeless thing? Ah, oh, my least favorite purposeless thing are purposeless meetings. Have you ever been in a purposeless meeting? You know, during the COVID era, oh my goodness, you'd sit in these Zoom meetings for hours. And you'd mute your microphone, you know, and you'd turn off your camera so you could eat your bowl of ice cream or do whatever you had to do. And you'd say nothing, contribute nothing, and hear nothing that matters for two hours. And you'd leave and you'd be like, what is the point of living at this point? Like it just drained your soul, sucked the life out of you. You ever watched a purposeless movie or show? 
Do you remember The Mandalorian? Oh, it started out so good. Baby Yoda, amazing. Now halfway through the third season, we're like, what is even happening? Who is this redhead? Where is The Mandalorian? Darks, what is happening? Why would you idiots select a meeting place on a beach with serpents that eat you? Like, what is happening? It's just purposeless. Or The Little Mermaid, come on. What did you do? Some of us have a purposeless life. You know who you are. You show up to work. You get a raise. You make good money. Eventually, you know, you can only eat so nice. You can only do so much. You can only get so many new cars. And you go on a lavish vacation because that's what you do. Your kid wins the tournament, whatever. I mean, they, you pick up another new car. Grand Wagoneer this time instead of an Audi. This one's supposed to be better. And you get it and you're like, whatever. What's crazy is some of you, you have so much more than you did five years ago. But if you're honest with yourself, you feel a little bit worse than you did five years ago. And you reach this place of purposelessness and you're like, why? You just want to get out. You just want to get out. You feel so tired. You try to distract yourself with busy work, a game, a new thing, a new argument. For some of us, if we're being honest, I think church has become purposeless. We show up because we always have. We do our thing because that's what you do. And we know Jesus is, you know, he's, he's the only hope in the world, right? I mean, Jesus is the, is the deal. But I say that, and a lot of us are like, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 meh. You know what I mean? I mean, we show up, we come and serve, because that's what you do, and, you know, you want to reach people or whatever, and, you know, I mean, the band and the music and the building and the sermon, so good or whatever. What's for dinner? You know, that's what we do. We're in that series. I don't remember what the pastor talked about, but he's so good, you know. I mean, he speaks in his illustrations. What was it about again? What's for dinner? Are we in the Red Flag series? I don't even know anymore. Whatever. It'll be good next week too, probably. Who cares? And the purpose of church, it becomes harder and harder to remember, doesn't it? Amidst all the events, you know, we got trunk or treat and at the movies and Christmas and then Easter. It seems like it happens every year. And all the stuff, oh, it's so good and it's kind of meh. But it's good, but it's meh. And you reach this place and this is crazy, but year after year of growth kind of gets old, doesn't it? And I mean, what was the purpose of church again? Grow a whole lot? Is it build new buildings? preach and know the Bible or love God or whatever. If I ask 10 different people from 10 different towns and churches what the purpose of church was, I get 10 different answers. And what's crazy is this is not up for debate. I mean, the Bible is super clear. There are places where it's like, you know, I mean, it's up to you, it's whatever. The Bible is so clear. Jesus, our God and King, is super clear about what the purpose of the church is. There is one correct answer. Any other answer is incorrect. There's one purpose of the church. Jesus, after he rose from the grave, gave us a super clear purpose. He says, look, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The purpose of the church and of Christians is super clear. We are to love people and love God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's how you do it. Notice it doesn't say the purpose of church is to gather and pray and sing songs and feel Holy Spirit tingles. That's what church is about. You know, I sing that song and I feel tingles in my spine and I know God's present. It's like, how come I felt that same thing when I was at that Justin Bieber concert? Yeah, he's awesome, okay? I'm a believer, still am, right? But why, you know, if God's presence is defined, listen, worshiping God doesn't happen through music. It's, churches have done themselves a disservice by calling music directors worship leaders. They're not the worship leader. The worship leader is the person leading people in a disciple-making effort. That's how you worship God. That's how God says, worship me, make disciples. You wanna love God? You wanna worship God? Make disciples of Jesus Christ and teach them to obey his commands. And he's with you as you do it. 
Paul, the greatest early church pastor and apostle of Jesus, puts it this way in the message translation. He says, even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, God's grace is sufficient, I'm saved, I don't need to like, reach people in order to be a Christian, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. I do this out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for me, is what he's saying. And I want to reach a lot of different kinds of people. Okay? Religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralists, loose living, immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. It doesn't matter if they're made in the image of God. I want them to know Jesus. He says, um, I didn't take on their way of life. In other words, like I didn't go and get drunk with them. Okay, I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I made a worship service that was relevant to them. I connected with them using analogies that would speak to their heart and show understanding. I become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet to a God-saved life. Anything short of sin to reach people far from God. I did this because of the message. I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. Paul says, look, my purpose is super simple. I want to do what Jesus told me to do, which is to go and make disciples, followers of Jesus. That's mature Christianity. Mature Christianity isn't knowing lots of Bible verses. It's making disciples of Jesus. And Paul makes it clear. Style doesn't matter. If you need to use flat screens and skinny jeans to do it, then do it. Okay, now it's not flats. Cargo pants are back again. Baggy cargo carpenter pants. It's like, what in the world, you guys? I just can't keep up anymore. Go to H&M. I'm throwing pants out left and right. I mean, this is crazy. They only last like one wash at this point anyway. If you get them from H&M, they're pretty bad. Because look, if you need to go verse by verse through the Bible, verse by verse through the book of Romans for three and a half years, then do it. If that's gonna make new disciples of Jesus, then do it. You try to find common ground with everyone. If you have pews, hymns, whatever it takes. And notice it doesn't say, the purpose of the church is to know the Bible really well. The purpose of the church is to go to seminary. The purpose of the church is for big buildings to follow rules really well, to fix social justice issues, to pay for missionaries. No, no, no. Those all may serve the purpose, but the real purpose is to make followers of Jesus Christ. I think it's easy to forget why this is such a great purpose, but allow me to enlighten you. This is more than just healing cancer. If I could heal the world of cancer, I would give a finite good to the world. If I could lead one person into an eternal, infinite relationship with Jesus, that's an infinite good. That is infinitely better than curing the world of cancer. I mean, this is the best good you can do. <clears throat> and I think on and off throughout the church's history, we have latched onto our purpose and done great and then forgotten about our purpose. In the 1920s, the church was in huge decline in America because we forgot about our purpose. In the Billy Graham era, the 50s, and especially the 60s, there was this incredible church movement we're continually, always, we call people to a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus is what we called it. And as a result, it's pretty remarkable to see sociologically what happened across the American landscape. And I know that um, correlation isn't always causation, but the correlations here are super, super close. So many good things happened because of people wanting to follow Jesus. First off, um, as people followed Jesus, households became much more stable. Uh, domestic and child abuse went way down. Science made great advances, specifically because of scientists who are Christians wanting to worship God by knowing. It's interesting, our scientific fields and advancement has slowed down significantly as Christians who are scientists have left the field. Segregation and racism were largely pushed back in America, specifically because of a charge led by Christians who had a heart of forgiveness instead of a heart of condemnation. Our greatest advancements in life expectancy happened in this era because it turns out that being engaged weekly with church dramatically increases life expectancy. Most sociologists agree by seven to nine years 
Isn't that amazing? Because it turns out when you're engaged with church, you start making better choices. Being engaged with church increases mental health and dramatically lowers risk of depression and suicide. Doesn't eliminate it. Many good Christians still struggle with that. Most importantly, millions of people during that era found an eternal relationship with God, their creator. The church of Jesus, and here's the big thought with all that I just said, all those numbers. The church of Jesus is the only hope for the world. I mean, if you turn on the news and you're like, ah, like what's happening? What do we do? We need a campaign. We need to get out there. We need to do whatever, grassroots, whatever. Listen, that ain't gonna fix it. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. You know, you look at cities that have abandoned Jesus, the cities that are the most progressive in abandoning the teachings of Jesus, uh, LA, Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, and Chicago, the most de-churched cities in the nation. They're the worst. Wealth inequality is the worst. Homelessness is terrible. Mental health is horrible. Families falling apart. And what's crazy is these cities specifically throw way more money at these problems than any other cities. Way more money. But it turns out money doesn't heal. Jesus Christ heals. And that's what people forget. Because the church is the hope of the world. Now, our goal and purpose isn't to fix those things. That's the crazy part. Our goal is to give people a relationship with God. The byproduct is that homelessness, mental health, families, all those things get better because of Jesus. The reason the church fell apart is because we forgot our purpose. We forgot about making disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think what happened is a lot of times the byproduct that I just mentioned became the goal. And especially, and this is a big deal, I think some churches have been hijacked by a social justice mission or a political mission. It's become God in some churches. In other cases, churches have just gotten unfocused. What we do is we talk about God's purpose, but we don't actually do it. Sort of like NASA after the moon. We're just not sure where to go. We argue about it and there's no vision. So I wanna zoom in for a moment on this church, our church, first church. You know, I love this church. But as I was writing this message and I thought about, you know, New Hope Church and and, and the other churches I mentioned, Woodland Hills, um, I thought about those churches and where they were at. They were just like us, thriving, full of life. And today, they've just been completely decimated. And when I got here, you know, eight years ago, I was ready to go. Everybody wanted to make disciples of Jesus. And I get a lot of credit for what's happened here, but I really don't deserve it. Like it was the pillars of this church. We call them the original 200 who were just so focused on building a church that people far from God would love. And the previous senior pastor, I mean, he's really the one who did so much to lay the groundwork. But when I got here, I got to put the pedal to the metal and the the path was already cleared for me. And our first Sunday, this makes me look better than than, than I really should, but my first Sunday here was, was Labor Day, so the attendance was super low, but we had 137 people in church on my first Sunday, men, women, and children. And uh, this year at Easter, we had just under 3,000. Praise God for that. That's a great story. Every number is a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. You know, I, if personally, I don't want the church to grow because it's more work for me, but I love God, so I want the church to grow. And here's the thing. I'm starting to sense that our church is losing our focus. You know, and the music, like, it keeps getting better and it really does connect with the feels for sure, and that's great. And the messages, you know, they're so interesting. Did you see that pastor and he had that car problem and he ran and he's got a hole in his brain and wow, it's just so interesting. Oh my goodness, like, how does he even think without a brain? You know, I mean, amazing. That's all you get. It's like I'm throwing truth BBs and you guys are wearing biker helmets and it's just clink, clink, you know, I'm trying. I'm kidding, you guys get it. But we're missing something. You know, shallow churches, simple churches, They preach the message clearly. They teach you the Bible. 
That's easy, you know, to sit here and exposit the verses for you and just say, okay, everybody open your mouth, here it comes, ready? We're gonna read through it, okay? Open, ah, ah, you know, just trying to, and that's not deep. That's not mature. Mature Christians don't know the Bible super well. They live it deep, rich, wide, profound. Mature churches compel people to live out their God-given purposes, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To see people far from God raised to life in Christ through you, through you, God working through you. Go and make disciples of all the nations, he says. And the other day I had this sobering thought. I thought, when was the last time on average that individuals from our church try to make a disciple of Jesus? If you look at everybody, everybody at our church who calls this, you know, first church is where I go to church, okay? When was the last time on average all of us corporately together aggregately shared our faith, tried to invite someone to church, tried to share our faith with a friend, tried to point someone to Jesus, I'd hope that it's like two weeks. But I think for some of us it's been months or years or never. And here's the thing. Church like this gets old when you're not living out your purpose. It's like a purposeless Zoom meeting. You're just sitting here and he's talking and it's like, well, you know, he almost killed his kids again on a jet ski. When's he gonna learn? That guy is so tight. He squeaks when he walks. Unbelievable. Maybe he needs to just, you know, spend on nicer cars. You know, what is, and you just sit here and you show up and it's like, okay, what's on, what's for lunch? You know, I hope my house doesn't burn down because pastor preaches too long. And you just start drifting away. That's where a lot of us are at. The King James Bible puts it this way in Proverbs 29, 18. It says, where there is no vision, where there is no purpose, the people perish. Their faith doesn't last. But he that keepeth the law, he that focuses on the purposes of God, happy is he. Listen, and here's my big one point. I'm about to reveal one point, one point message. This is it. When we lose sight of our God-given purposes, our faith will not last. It's when your faith dies. And maybe not necessarily in your life, but this is where your kid's faith, your grandkid's faith dies. Your kids will not follow Jesus if you're not living out your purpose. You know, it's crazy. My kids are getting older now and they're um, starting to sit in weddings I do, services I do. And... <laughs> You guys, you know, you'll come up, oh, pastor, that was a great message. My kids will be like, yeah, dad, that was terrible. You know, I mean, they will, they will tell you the truth. You know, I mean, they don't mince words. And your kids, you can put up a facade for everybody else, but your kids know. They know what's real. They see what you're really doing. They know what's behind the veil of your life. And if you're just coming with a purposeless faith, that's not compelling they're gonna buy Felicia out of that meaningless, empty ritual and tradition of religion before you know it. And you'll be sitting there seeing a faith that died in your generation. That's what's happening to the church. I know a lot of you are like, okay, uh, Pastor, you got me a little scared for my children. What do we do? How do we make, or how do we live out that purpose? And this is where I have my four sub points. And these Again, they're gonna be themed for Christians. Even if you're a non-Christian though, I think they'll be super helpful. They're very, very practical. I try to be practical, right? Because I wanna transform your life. I don't want you to just come and learn. I want you to be transformed. This, these are the action steps. I wanna challenge you to actually do this. Fathers, husbands, leaders of families, mothers, wives, I wanna challenge you to challenge your families to do this. These are very tangible, very practical. First one, pray for an opportunity to make disciples of Jesus. Pray. If all your prayers were answered this week, would anybody become a Christian? And the answer for most of us is no, no. And that said, you know, our prayers are so simple. Like I can pretty much simplify. If you're older, you really only pray about two things. If you're younger, maybe three things that we pray about. First off, what do we pray about? God, get me there safely. 
Everybody, God, I'm dying. Would you just get me there safe? That's everybody prays that. You know, that's like the big prayer. It's like, oh my goodness, you would think that the, the, the roads are much less safer than they are, but I mean, that's what we pray all the time, okay? And number two, God, would you heal somebody? Heal me, heal so-and-so. And it's like, this is, I mean, all the time, that's what we pray for. And I don't know how to tell this church this. I say it, spray it, wheel it, deal it, try to make you feel it, but I'm like missing, like, guys, we're all gonna die. That's it. Like, someday God is gonna heal you by taking you home. And that's it. Like, that's the ultimate healing, isn't it? I mean, we are going to die, and this is what we pray for, and it's like, golly, guys, I wanna pray for faith more than healing physically. Then sometimes this is like a subcategory is, is, is God blesses food to my body, but we don't mean that. What does that even mean? God make my, like our intestines work. Like, we're good. You know what I mean? Like, that, that, I just think we say that because that's what we say. I don't know, I'm not counting that one. God, get me there safely. God, heal me. And the third one for young people is, God, give me a spouse. One is the loneliest number. I mean, that's it. Like, God, give me a spouse. I'm so lonely. Pray that people far from God be raised to life in Christ. Number two, pray that God would give you a burden for his purposes. You know, most of us, if we're honest, we just don't care about God. I'm preaching this message and a lot of you are like, yeah, no, that's great. I just don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't. Like, God has his purpose, and like, I don't really. My wife, after the pastor at our last church, preached this message, uh, not this message, but a, a message about God's purposes for a life similar to this. Um, Kristen was like, you ever have that? Your spouse is like waking you. It's like, what, what? Um, she's like, John, I don't have a burden for God's purpose for my life. I don't really care. And I was like, well, let's, let's pray about it. And of all the prayers I've ever prayed, I don't think God has ever answered a prayer more. Like, God wrecked our life. It was like, oh my goodness, this is a dangerous prayer. Like, do not pray that God would break your heart for what breaks his unless you really mean it. I mean, I can't go to SB19. I can't go to Trace Amigos, Hebrew people, unless I want to share the gospel of Jesus with my wife. I mean, everybody, I'm on a date, and I'm like, look at all this right here. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing trying to share Jesus with the waitress? Like, here I am, okay? You think that you're on a date with her? Look at me, girl! You know, but there she is everywhere we go, sharing Jesus here and there. She's got a burden. God has broken her heart for what breaks his. And this is a prayer that God loves to answer. If you want to pray, that, I dare you to start praying, God, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you give me a burden for your purpose in my life? And he will answer that prayer. This is a scary, dangerous prayer. But I dare you to start doing it this week, if you're brave enough. Number three, get out of the bubble. Many of us, we interact with the same people in life. We're like a big freight liner. Just doing the same thing every day. Some of us, we're so chronically online, we can go all week without ever talking to anyone, which is crazy because you live with people, but you just never talk to anyone because just we don't even see. It'd be a huge car accident right in front of you, but you're laughing at someone dancing on TikTok and just keep, go to a different store. Go to a different gym, or maybe just join a gym. Here's a big one, this is a big one, this is a pro tip, okay? Smile. If you look at early pictures of me and Kristen dating, I had this thing, and it's so embarrassing to admit because I tease others, but I had what's called facial muscle atrophy. I couldn't emoji in real life because I always, this was my face. Okay, and some people say, I just have this thing called, there's a different term for it, but we'll call it resting mean face. Okay, that's what I have. I have this face. And it's like, no, you don't. You just don't exercise your smile muscles. My wife was like, you need to start working out because originally this was my best smile. Like I could, you know, and she's like, no. And I was like, you got to do it, you know. And uh, one, two, three, you know, just working out, doing reps. 
I start wearing a smile on my face, and I'm actually amazed. It's like, wow, people are so much nicer. You know what? Like, everybody is so much nicer. Just put a little app. Like, my life is better. Smile at people. And guess what? You'll make fr- friends. It's crazy. Are these friends? Is that what this is? Number four, carry an invite card around and set a goal to invite someone to church. Karen, invite a, just don't let this bad boy go through the wash. Well, you can, I mean, I, we got plenty of them. But like, invite someone to church with an invite card. My old pastor that I worked for at my last church, he used to say to get into staff meetings, which we had every week, because he liked the sound of his voice or whatever. Um, we had to invite seven people to church, one a day. That was his rule. And that's a lot. I would never make my team do that. Maybe I will. No, I won't. Um, but listen, it was one of the sweetest times of growth in my life because my heart was for reaching people. And I wouldn't go anywhere without a card in my pocket, praying for an opportunity, like my job depended on it, because I kind of did, you know. But like, please, come to my church. And you know, I was so passionate about the music, about the message, about everything, because I had a ton of friends far from God next to me in church. Like, it made me love God so much more. So I'm passionate about a purpose because I love God, but it's also, I'm kind of biased. It's personal because my life has been changed by it. This is my dad. He actually came to first service, and this picture was taken 17 years ago for his 25th wedding anniversary, and he was literally wearing the same shirt and the same pants and the same belt in church this morning, which we didn't plan. It just, it happened. It happened. My dad was raised in an atheist family. They went to a Universalist Unitarian church, and he, uh, for his senior thesis, wrote that, uh, because he had to write about his purpose for life, and he wrote... You get a career, you get rich, you make money, and you kill yourself. And that was actually his plan. And he was saved from that and so much more. His life radically transformed because his sister, my Aunt Jan, who herself been radically saved, invited my dad to a Billy Graham crusade. And my dad went and chose to follow Jesus. And everybody in this church that's been blessed by my ministry was because it's happened because of my Aunt Jan, who invited my dad to church one time. My mom, same picture, different outfit that she wore than today because she, you know, has style. Um, She was a Buddhist. She was destitute, hopeless. Her mom had died when she was young. Her dad was in the hospital dying and she was still young. And a missionary in Osaka, Japan named Jack Marshall shared Jesus with her and invited her to church at the most broken part of her life. She went to church and was radically saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jack Marshall invited her to church. And you know, it's crazy. Jack Marshall is still a missionary. He must be like 120 years old. But you know, all that sushi and fish, it just really keeps her going. But I'm thankful for him. My wife, Kristen, leads the Hebron campus. You guys up there love her, I know. I love her more. But um, she's touched so many people in this church. You know, I mean, many of you have met with her and you know um, what a godly woman she is. She was anxious and depressed and aimless, beautiful, successful, and lonely and purposeless. And a friend named Colleen handed her an invite card, said, hey, Kristen, I want you to come to my church with me this Sunday. And she went. And her life and the lives of so many others were transformed because someone close to her had been praying for her specifically and asking God for a burden for people far from God and had the courage to invite her to church. And look, the data and the science are all on the side of Christianity. If logic and evidence and science would cause people to follow Jesus, everybody would follow Jesus. I mean, come on, something doesn't come from nothing. Every shred of data that we have tells us that atheism and secularism and non-religion 
is a religious cult of self-deception and it is the most destructive movement in human history, without a doubt. Like wherever a country stops following Jesus, Soviet, Russia, China, everywhere else, like genocide and, and human murders happen. Well, we know that an intelligent creator clearly made all of this. I mean, all the cosmological evidence tells us this universe is finely tuned and balanced by a loving, all-powerful, intelligent creator. If evidence was all that we need, everybody would be a Christian. But evidence won't do it. God didn't make you to be that logical. We were made to thrive on relationship. And we need a relationship with a friend like Jesus. Thank God for my dad's sister who incarnated Christ for him and invited him to church. Thank God for Jack Marshall, the missionary who befriended my mother in her darkest hour. Thank God for Colleen who handed my wife an invite card. Every Sunday, we put services together that we think your friends far from God will love and we think will compel you to love Jesus more. I believe every person could be one relationship and one invite away from finding Jesus. Now, I know some of you here today, you were invited. And you're here and you hear this message and it's like, okay, this isn't for me, but it is. I just want you to think about the fact that God is real, like he is. And if you believe in objective, empirical evidence, like we know 100% that God is real. And think about what that means. You will stand before him at the end of this life. The all-powerful, radiant, glorious, holy God, you will face him. Among all world religions, Christianity stands apart. No other movement has lifted humans out of poverty and slavery like Christianity. No other religion is vindicated by science, archeology, span and history like Christianity. God is real. Christianity is true. Jesus is the only way to find a relationship with God at the end of this life. And you will meet God at the end of this life, a second after you take your last breath on earth. All of the evidence that we've done on near-death experiences vindicates the Christian narrative. You will meet God, you will meet God, and what will he say to you about your life? The Bible teaches us that only through a relationship with Jesus as leader and forgiver will God say to us, come on into heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. I just want you to think about what you're living. How long is this life compared to eternity? It's nothing. It's shorter than a snap, an eye blink. I want you to think about your life, your purpose, the call of God on it. I want to start any more services this way, but um, right now I want us to meditate together on our lives. I'd like to ask heads to bow and eyes to close in a moment of privacy and concentration, at the very least, out of respect to your neighbors. I want to ask you, um, first of all, for um, many of us, are you living out your God-given purposes? I just want you to reflect on your life and really think, am I making disciples of Jesus Christ with my life, with my giving, with my effort, with my time, with my leadership, with my family, and my people, at school, amongst my peers? Am I living out God's purposes for my life? If your faith is stale, if your faith has felt kind of meaningless, that's signs of it. Right now, if you have been living life away from God's purpose, would you just confess that right now in your heart? You don't need to say it out loud, but in your heart, I just want you, if that's you, to admit to God, God, I have not been living out my purposes. And if you're willing, would you say, God, I repent. I turn from that. And I choose to live for your purposes now. You make that decision. If you mean business with God, you can pray in your heart with me. God, would you give me a burden for what breaks your heart? Would you give me a burden in my heart, a passionate, unrelenting burden for people far from God? Would you make me want to make disciples? 
And then one more prayer. God, would you let me reach? And then I want you to fill in the blank. I want you to say the name in your minds, in your heart. Would you help me reach? Fill in the blank right now. This week. Would you give me the opportunity? There are others of you here today, you don't have a relationship with God and I would just encourage you in your heart right now, if you don't have a relationship with God, you can pray with me. God, I ask you to forgive my sins and lead my life. I know you're real and I haven't been living like it. Today, I ask you to forgive me, to lead me. I admit that I haven't been living according to your plan and purpose. And today I choose to give my life to you. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said amen and amen. Please stand as we sing this last song together.